0: If you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them again with me to Genesis chapter 10 this morning. Genesis chapter 10. Uh, This morning we're going to read a lengthy passage, Genesis 10 verse 1 down to chapter 11 verse 9. It says this, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Eshkenaz, Riphah, Togermar, The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabtika. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Didan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kelna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth Ur, Kela, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kela, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Animim, Lahabim, Neftuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came and Keftorim. Canaan fathered Sidon his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Archites, and the Sinnites, the Arvidites, and the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gera, as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem, also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz. Hol, gather, and mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelif Hazer Jerah, Hadorim, Uzzel, Dikla, Obol, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now... The whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and butumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth amen you all should applaud for me reading all those names May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Folks, I have a question for all of you, and I want a legitimate show of hands this morning. Some, some crowd participation today, okay? First of all, how many of you would say that you are the type of person that when you receive a new book, before you start that book, you have to read the preface and the prologue in its entirety? How many of you are that? Good. All right, you guys are the rule followers. I'm glad you feel good about yourselves this morning. Second question, how many of you, when you get a new book, might sometimes read them, but oftentimes skip over or skim through the prologue or the preface? Excellent. You all are a little bit more normal. <laughs> Some of you moms are saying to yourselves, I don't, didn't know Dr. Seuss books had prologues. I would just love to read a book that has a prologue in it someday. But, but actually, for those of you who are tracking these things, and I know some of you are in this room, there's really a really big difference between a prologue and a preface. They're, they're not the same things. A preface really is just a brief statement by the author about the book that he's written. But a prologue is actually the opening to the story that establishes the, the setting and gives background details to the story. Prologue and preface, very, very different things. Folks, we are coming up to the very end of the prologue to the whole book of Genesis here. Yes, just to the prologue. Genesis 1 to 11 is really just the first section of Genesis. And as you know, like a prologue, it has been used by God to establish the setting to this story. These first 11 chapters of Genesis have established the great need of humanity And now it's not till the new year, it's not till we get into January and we jump into chapter 12 that the story of redemption is actually going to begin and launch us into the rest of the scriptures. These 11 chapters really do just set the stage for the story of redemption that will come. And folks, by the time we get to chapter 11, we're really ready for the story of redemption to begin, aren't we? We're ready for this. By the time we get to chapter 11, we are weighed down by the curse of sin and by the brokenness of this world. Dealing with Noah and the flood, it's not easy to do. The sin of Ham, it's uncomfortable. The Tower of Babel story, it's not easy. Studying these things do not feel easy. They they don't feel festive to us this holiday season, right? I mean, it's December. Why why don't we just preach on some more happy texts than these? But listen, if you are feeling that this morning, then the prologue of Genesis 1 to 11 has done exactly what Moses intended it to do when he wrote it. By the time we get to chapter 11, we should be longing for something more festive, more happy, more joyful, more hopeful than this. Why? Well, because these first 11 chapters have been dark. We have seen the pandemic of sin spread throughout the world. And, friends, this morning's text really is the the exclamation point on the prologue of Genesis. This passage ends the prologue with a very loud bang. What, What we see here, yet again, is that the sin of our pride constantly distorts God's plan and purposes for our lives. But yet, His grace is persistent to us as His people. Folks, here's our main idea here this morning. Though complicated by sin, God's gracious plan will prevail for those who trust in him. Though complicated by sin, God's gracious plan will prevail for those who trust in him. And we have four points this morning. One, God's good design. Two, our tower of pride. Three, God's intentional divide. Four, our future reunion. Those are our four points this morning. Begin with the first. Point number one God's good design. If you read these two chapters carefully, an immediate question should come to your mind. As, as you read chapter 10, and then you read the story of the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, you should immediately ask the question aren't these two sections backwards? Right. It seems in chapter 10 like the people have already been given their specific languages. It actually says it explicitly in verse 5, verse 20, and verse 31. They already have their languages, and it also makes explicit that they're already dispersed throughout the world. You see that in verse 5 and also in verse 32. Look at verse 32 with me. It says, these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to the genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. And so, if the Tower of Babel in chapter 11 is where this division happened, then why does it already seem to be that way in chapter 10? Isn't this somewhat contradictory Maybe there's an editing mistake made by Moses or by a later scribe. Is that what's happened here? Well, no, folks, this this isn't a mistake. This isn't a contradiction. The reversal of these two passages is intentional on Moses' part. We know that the events of the Tower of Babel in chapter 11 came first chronologically and those events were the means through which the different languages and the dispersion throughout the world came about. And we know that because chapter 10 tells us so, right? Look at chapter 10, verse 25. It says, to Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Pelag. Pelag means division. For, it says, in his days, the earth was divided. And then verse 5 or verse 10 also speaks of the city of Babel already having been built. And so Moses acknowledges right here in chapter 10 that the events of chapter 11 have already occurred. But here's the question. Why? Why does chapter 10 come before chapter 11? Well, folks, like many things in the book of Genesis so far, it seems very clear that Moses wrote this in this way for theological reasons and and purposes. Here's why. Reversing the order that we read these events in allows us as the readers to see the goodness of God's design, which is then broken apart by humanity's sin, right? Right? This story is just another example of what we've already seen throughout Genesis so far. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God created Adam and Eve, very different from one one another, but united together. But then sin makes them be at odds with each other. In chapter 4... We saw Cain and Abel as as brothers in the same family. When we studied chapter four together, we saw the word brother used multiple times in order to highlight how they were brothers in the same family, but then sin and pride caused even brothers from the same family to war against each other when Cain rose up and killed Abel. In chapter 9, after the flood, Noah's family seems united for a little while. I mean, they're the only family on the planet at that time. But then, in very short order, a dividing line is drawn because of sin between Ham and his two brothers. This has, been, this has been the constant theme of Genesis 1 to 11. God designs humanity to be united, despite their many differences, their good differences, but sin Breaks them apart. And folks, this is why chapter 10 comes before chapter 11. If the content of chapter 10 came after the Tower of Babel, we might think that the many different nations and and tribes and ethnicities represented in chapter 10, we might be tempted to think that those differences are only a consequence of sin rather than a part of God's good design for us. If if the Tower of Babel came first, then we might think that any division, any distinction, any ethnic diversity was only a result of sin, and we would assume that God had actually wanted us all to be the same, that God wanted us to be a monolithic people, a a singular humanity, that we're all supposed to look the same and and talk exactly the same and, and have the same cultural and ethnic experiences. But folks, we know that that's not God's design. God made us different. God made Adam and Eve different. God made Cain and Abel different. Throughout Scripture, God celebrates the differences of the nations. Differences are not a bad thing. In fact, differences can be seen even within God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And and this is why chapter 10 comes first. Chapter 10 shows God's heart for humanity. Folks, I wish that I had time to dig into chapter 10 with you in greater detail this morning because there's so much to say from this chapter. But here is probably the most important thing to notice about Genesis chapter 10. This text, though it's speaking about all these different nations and tribes, is less about sinful divisions and more about the solidarity and the unity of all of humanity despite our many differences. Chapter 10 is more than just a genealogy. Chapter 10 has been called the, the table of nations. It is an ethnographic map. Chapter 10 is, is laying out where, where all the ethnicities of this world came from. But its purpose is to not emphasize the divisions, but to emphasize the unity. No, notice how this chapter both begins and ends. Verse 1 And verse 32, make it explicitly clear that all of these are the sons and clans and nations that all came from the same place. They all have the same source of life, which is Noah. And indirectly, the text wants us to remember ultimately God himself. And then notice the way that there are exactly 70 nations highlighted in this text we don't have time to count them right now, but this chapter is written in a very stylistic way. It's, it's meant to emphasize, particularly with that number 70, it's meant to emphasize the, the completion and the totality of what God had designed. 70, biblically speaking, is a, very, uh, is a number that shows wholeness and completion and totality. Genesis 10 shows us that though the human family is very diverse and different from each other, it is a united whole. We all have one source. Tribes and nations are not a result of of our sin. Now, Now, our struggle to get along together and the difficulty of language barriers and other cultural barriers, those are a result of sin, as we will see in chapter 11. But tribes and nations, no, they are a part of God's good design for a global family of humanity. Folks, this is so important to see. We have a common origin, and and with that common origin, though, though we are very different from each other, though there are many different races and ethnicities, we are meant to be united under God. By putting Genesis 10 first, God is showing us that he values diversity. He values the nations of this world. R. Kent Hughes says this, he says, "The, The transcending truth of the table of nations, or chapter 10, is that it gives an unparalleled ecumenical vision of human reality. The table declares the interrelatedness of all peoples. We all have the same ancestry. We all, red and yellow, black and white and pink and beige and piebald, share the dual paternity of Adam and Noah. Our DNA comes from the same source, all people are united to one another by their ancestry and by their responsibility to their creator God. But at the same time, all the world's people are divided by geography and language and ethnicity and culture, and most of all by their fallenness and sin, which separates them both from God and each other. Church, this is so important for us to to see as we begin. This this should lead us as a church family to to value and to pursue healthy biblical conversations about race and ethnicity within the church. You know, sometimes people can can resist conversations about race and ethnicity because they feel like to have those conversations is to, is to highlight the differences rather than the unity. And to talk about differences, to talk about some division feels, feels dangerous to us. It leaves us feeling very, very vulnerable. Many people just want to say, no, we're, we're all the same. We're all loved by God. There's no differences between us. We don't need to see skin color within the church. And so let's not talk about how some of us are Asian and some of us are Indian, and some of us are black, and some of us are white. Let's not talk about those things. Let's just all be together as a whole. But what we see in this text is that by God's design, we are very different. We're not all the same. Since saying that, that you are colorblind when it comes to matters of race and ethnicity That is not a God-honoring thing to say. I understand the sentiment behind it, that we're colorblind, but it's not God-honoring because it ignores and belittles the beautiful display of diversity that God has made in this world. It minimizes the extraordinary beauty that is the global human family. We are, by God's design, Different. And as the church, we should find ways to have healthy conversations about those differences and how those differences can make much of God and not of ourselves. This is important. Friends, that brings us to our second point this morning. Point number two, our tower of pride. God has designed us to be diverse, and our diversity is actually a reflection of who he is. It's, it's part of his good design. It's very, very good. But he also wants us to be united together, right? Unity is a good thing. Unity is God-honoring. Unity is biblical. And so, so why, we might ask, why is the Tower of Babel such a big deal? And we might ask that because as you start reading chapter 11, what you see is a whole lot of unity on display. Verse 1 says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. That that seems like a good thing. Shouldn't God be happy about this? But it quickly becomes apparent that this unity is not a good thing. Why? Well, because this unity is quickly leading these people to an incredible display of pride on their part and and from within their own hearts. Look at verse 4. It says... Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Here's the problem their their united language was leading them to extraordinary amounts of pride and power in themselves. They wanted to make a name. For themselves. They, they wanted, it says, to create a tower that reached into the heavens. Both of those phrases are significant to notice here. First of all, they, they wanted to make a name for themselves. This is, as we have already seen throughout Genesis, it's remarkably self centered. It's, it's like those who came before them, it's a refusal to live under God's name and under God's glory and authority. We, we want to be who we are apart from you, God. And then second of all, it's actually an assault on heaven itself. They want to make a tower, it says, whose top is in the heavens. This... This desire on their part really does reflect the the common understanding in that day within the polytheistic religions of that day and and that the gods, they believe, resided up in the sky. And if you could just find some way to, to cross the heavenly boundary, you could be with the gods and you could be like the gods. That was the perception. And so they wanted to be like God, much like Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. And then third, notice the phrase in verse 4 that says that they wanted to do all of this lest they be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. There seems to be in this a resistance to God's design that they would fill the earth and subdue it. They they did not want to be dispersed. They didn't want to populate the earth and to become diverse into lots of different nations and tribes. They wanted to remain only one. Why? Well, because to disperse, to fill the earth as God intended, would have involved spreading out, and to spread out means to become vulnerable. It's dangerous to be diverse. There's safety in numbers. To obey God in this would have required tremendous faith and courage on their part. And so, in all of this, what do we see? Well, we see again immense pride, incredible self-sufficiency, They want a name for themselves. They want to be like God and they don't want to live a life that requires faith and courage and trust in the one true God. This is an assault on heaven and it is in Genesis 1 to 11 the ultimate demonstration of human pride and self-sufficiency. It is the exclamation point on on this introduction. In fact, Babel which will eventually become the nation of Babylon, really does quickly become a biblical theme, a a biblical picture for human power and human control against God. Biblically speaking, Babylon really becomes synonymous with human pride and achievement in their own strength. Babel becomes synonymous to, to human ingenuity and what they can do apart from God's grace. Church, once again, we see the pride of our humanity wanting to be like God, not wanting to live under his authority. We don't want to be humble before him. We don't want to be vulnerable before him. We don't want our lives to require faith and trust. No, we want We want control. We want the authority. We want to build our lives up in our own strength and in a way that doesn't ever require faith or trust in him. We want to make our names great, our reputations famous and not his. Church, let's not be like the people of Babel. Let's not be people who want to make a name for ourselves. The result of that is always division. Let's not, let's not resist obedience to God because it requires courage and faith in him. No, let's be a people who want to make God's name famous in all the world and who are willing to live in a way in all areas of life that demonstrates our trust and our dependence on him rather than on ourselves. And that brings us to our third point this morning, point number three, God's intentional divide. His intentional divide. So the people say that they are going to make a name for themselves. They they pool up all of their resources and power. They they want to build a tower that, that reaches into the heavens. But all of these attempts all of their effort, all of their wisdom, all of their strength is for nothing. Look at verse 5. It says, And the Lord came down. To see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Folks, there seems to be a a decent amount of sarcasm written into this text by God. As as hard as they tried to reach up to God, still God had to come down to even see their puny little tower. It it speaks of how far above and how, how separate Yahweh is from those that He has made. He alone sits in the heavens, He alone stands high above all things. Isaiah 40 says that he holds the universe in the span of his hand. This text also speaks against all the other religions of that day, right? Babylon would become known as a polytheistic place. Many religions practice there. Babylon means gate of the gods. And so as Moses writes this, he is demonstrating how far above our God Yahweh is from all the other religions of this world. Friends, can we build a tower that reaches up to God? Can we demonstrate power or strength or morality or goodness big enough or strong enough to to reach him, to equal him, to to rival him? Can we reach heaven in our own strength? Can can your good works raise you high enough to heaven? No, they they can't. The picture that is painted here is that humanity, even with all of their, their strongest efforts, could never reach up to God. He still has to come down to them. Friend, your greatest attempts to reach God, it's like you standing up on a stool and thinking that you've climbed Mount Everest. It makes no sense. It's like you standing on stilts and feeling like you're you're as tall as a sequoia tree. It's like my little dog, five-pound dog Lucy, thinking that she can take on a Great Dane. Or like me this afternoon thinking that I can dunk a basketball into the hoop. It can't happen. It's not not going to happen. This is how far above God is in his holiness and power. And yet, this text is not only sarcastic about this project of human ingenuity. It is intended to show the difference between God and them. But verse 6 also shows us that God actually sees the significance of what they're doing. Look at what it says God himself says nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. It's not that God is threatened by them. He doesn't think they're actually going to accomplish these things if he doesn't stop them, but he knows that the human mind that he has created and the human strength that he has given, that when they are pooled together in this way, humanity will be unstoppable in their self-made humanistic attempts to rule their own lives. It's not that they can rule their own lives like God can, but it will be impossible for them to stop trying because they'll have so much power and corporate wisdom. And so God resolves to stop them. God resolves to put an end to these endeavors. Verse seven, he says, come. It's really a contrast to their Come, let us build a tower. He's, he's, he's contrasting them, mirroring them, in some ways mocking them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. And in so doing, he, he forces them to disperse, he, he forces them to separate, to find their individual identities and their ethnicities as they learn to work together with those who are like them. It, it's not that all, that the different ethnicities are a res, result of God's judgment of sin, against sin, but it is that God's judgment, his separation, makes relating across these nations and ethnicities difficult. Communication and unity become hard, if not impossible. Also it's it's not clear as to whether this is the official start of all the languages of the earth Did God somehow just miraculously have them start speaking in different languages? Was there suddenly German and Russian and Chinese and and English languages? Or did he just in some way make them unable to understand each other so that they now had to find new ways to communicate and thereby start the, the long process of linguistic development? I think that's probably what happened here. But here's the point of God's judgment. God doesn't want humanity to stand in their own strength. He lovingly and graciously wants us to live in humility and dependence upon him alone. And so friends, there are times like here in Babel when he intentionally disperses us. He intentionally thwarts our plans so that we might become more dependent on him. Church, there's a word for us in that. Sometimes God disperses us. Sometimes he scatters our plans just so that we need to lean more heavily upon him. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. It's not always even a a result of sin like it is here. Friend, let me ask you a question. Where is God thwarting your plans right now? Where do you feel dispersed and scattered in life? Has your health been failing have you lost your job? Have friends abandoned you? Has church leadership failed you? Have politics left you disappointed and fearful? Has, has 2020 just scattered all of your plans for your life? And do you, do you hate the vulnerability that that creates in you? We don't like feeling dispersed. We don't like feeling vulnerable. We don't like feeling like our attempts at building our own kingdoms are being thwarted. But God allows these things so that we might know him in true humility, so that we might lean more heavily into him and learn more of who he is and ultimately find the strength and power and unity that we long for. It's not gonna happen in ourselves. It's only in and through him. Which brings us to our fourth and to our final point this morning, point number four, our future reunion. Our future reunion. This, this story really is a, a repetition of what we've seen before in Genesis, right? Ha- hasn't there been, hasn't there been a theme and a pattern so far? Number one, Adam and Eve sin. God punishes them for that sin of pride. But then he, he covers their nakedness and gives them a hopeful promise. He gives them grace. Number, number two... Cain kills his own brother and God sends him out even farther from the Garden of Eden as a judgment, but then God even promises Cain to protect that he will protect him in the days to come. He gives him grace. The world is then filled with corruption and violence. God sends a flood of judgment against the whole globe, but he then extends his grace by preserving a family and reestablishing his covenant with that family. There's grace. This is a pattern. Sin, judgment, grace. Sin, judgment, grace. And today, we see the same thing almost. We see the same thing except for one thing. In our passage, we see the pattern. We see God's good design, unity despite diversity, chapter 10, check. We see man's pride, prideful rise up into power, check. We see God's judgment against them as he scatters them throughout the world, check. Sin, judgment. What comes next? Where's the picture of God's grace? Where do we see here God extending towards humanity and their sin, his grace and his mercy? Where are the promises? Where's the comfort in this text here in Babel? This story ends in a very fateful way. Look at verse 9. It says, And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. It seems like it's all bad. This is judgment, not grace. Well, folks, notice with me how this passage is formatted. What What was the final group of nations spoken of in chapter 10? It was the nations that came From Shem, right? We see that up in verse 21. To Shem, also the father of all the children of of Eber. Shem is last. And then we are interrupted with the story of the Tower of Babel, where all of humanity is trying to make a name for themselves. They want their name to be famous. And then, in Genesis chapter 11, verse 10, after the Tower of Babel, we return to the generations of Shem. Folks, what is this? Why is it organized in this way? Well, as we come to the end of this first major section of Genesis, this prologue, we find no explicit gift of grace to the nations, because the prologue is over, and the story of redemption is now beginning. As God's judgment scatters humanity throughout the world, he then officially launches his rescue mission. This is the grace within this story, within this text. God scatters the people throughout the world, and now it's time to get the story started. And we see all of this through the line of Shem. Jason's going to talk about this in a few weeks when he preaches the second half of chapter 11 and the first few verses of chapter 12. But it is through Shem that God chooses and calls us a family to himself. It is through Shem that he calls Abraham to live by faith and not by sight. And then it is through Shem that the Jewish nation, the Israelites, will come about. It is through Shem and then through Abraham that God will focus in on a family, one family, one weak and unimpressive family among all the nations of the world in order to bring about his plan of redemption. Why? To make his name great among the nations. Do you know what the, the name Shem even means? It means Name. Name, And so even as humanity tries to make a name for itself in the story of the Tower of Babel, God is already choosing a family, a people, a group through which he will give his name to, through whom which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. While humanity wants a name for themselves, God says, I will give you my name. And he says it to a people who are called only by his grace and not by their own strength or power. Folks, Genesis 1 to 11 It's not very festive (laughs) this holiday season. It's not full of, of cheer and goodwill. But what it leads us to is very festive. It leads us to Jesus. Through Shem, through Abraham, God will one day send his only son into this world as a little baby. To live and to die. To pay for our sins so that all who come to him and confess his name and not their own will be saved. And here's the amazing thing, it is through this little baby that all the nations of the world will be blessed. God scatters them in order to keep them from their self-sufficient pride, but his ultimate desire, which cannot be thwarted, is to unite them back to each other by his grace and to unite them all back to himself. And that all happens through this little baby Jesus. Even in the Christmas story, we see the reunion begin to take place. The kings, the wise men from other nations come to pay their respect to baby Jesus. Throughout his life and ministry, Jesus loved to care for those who were not of the Jewish people. He loved the Gentiles, Gentiles, people like most of us in this room. Why? Because his rescue mission is for all people. And so, friends, there is hope. In the midst of all the the dark and and painful stories of of the prologue to Genesis, there, there is hope. There's hope for us individually, and there's hope for us corporately. God is on a rescue mission to bring people and whole nations back to himself. We won't always be divided, church. Getting along won't always be so difficult. There won't always be these divisions, And because of what we know of that coming day, we can fight tirelessly for it within the church here today. Though complicated by sin, God's gracious plan will prevail for those who trust in him. And so we can live in light of that day. Even now, we can live for that day by making our lives about his name and not our own. We can live for that day by pursuing unity and not division. We can pursue that day by humbly following God's calling upon our lives, even when it is costly, even when it requires great faith and courage on our part. His plans cannot be thwarted. And for all who call upon his name and not their own, these things will come about.